that that kind of process of of trying to change the paradigm of thinking that the best thing you can do for a city is build freeways and sprawl a city further and further out that has been under attack now for some time particularly by grassroots groups who knew there was something wrong like Jane Jacobs she didn't quite understand it but she knew it was wrong Welcome to part two of the Mid-Century Books podcast with Peter Newman. I believe what you're saying is that to some extent, with from a professional point of view, this became an accepted term. People had to acknowledge that, well, yes, there is a relationship between a certain type of city and its dependence on the automobile. But can you speak a little bit more about the degree to which this is still politicized today, we still have lobbies in place, we still have controversy and just debates over really, we're still, we're still discussing the data. We're still not sure whether or not things like climate change really exist. Do you, do you mind just commenting a little bit further on how hard it is to depoliticize data? Yes, indeed. It's um, been a, uh, a process of me working on this sort of thing as an academic and collecting data constantly and, and writing books and papers and getting lots of PhD students working on it. But at the same time, I have been an, uh, an activist. I have been very involved in um, activities where we were trying to save cities, to save train lines, to build differently, to stop sprawl, to stop freeways. This kind of thing has been very common in American cities since the era of Jane Jacobs, a uh, great hero of mine, and um, uh, that that kind of process of, of trying to change the paradigm of thinking that the best thing you can do for a city is build freeways and sprawl a city further and further out, that has been under attack now for some time particularly by grassroots groups who knew there was something wrong, like Jane Jacobs. She didn't quite understand it, but she knew it was wrong. And I've been involved in many of those um, activist, uh, uh, they're, they're confrontations that are heavily politicised. They, they have to be solved politically. They're not just rational. So I got involved in the Portland dispute where the Mount Hood Freeway was um, taken on by a thousand friends of Oregon to see that they could instead build a, a, a light rail system. And they won. I helped in that process. I went to Portland and, and, and presented at big public meetings and helped provide the data that they needed to, to help win that case. Now, I've done that in Denver. I've done it in, uh, in a number of American cities. And, and a lot of the groups write to me and I send them the kind of information. So I've been helping them out, uh, if you like, to win their, their uh, activism issues uh, whilst getting heavily involved in them in my own country. So we have just won a state election here that was totally based around a freeway that was totally, very misplaced and uh, instead 
have won a major victory for public transport. Now, that's probably the sixth big victory we've won here in my city, and I started that in 1979 when uh, the government closed down our railway, and that I was really upset by that and ran the campaign to bring back the trains, and we won that. The government was thrown out. It was a massive public reaction to, to win that. In the process of doing that kind of activism, you have to provide good arguments that are based on sound data. So all the data I was collecting fed into those campaigns and have, and have continued to provide that source of understanding that the groups in my own uh, country and city have needed, as well as in many other cities around the world. I've, I have also helped in, in some Indian cities, some uh, uh, other Asian cities, and uh, in, in Europe. Um, so my books are written for people who can use them as good academic studies, but also as things to use in changing the world, making it more sustainable. So the second book in the series that I've written on automobile dependence was called Sustainability and Cities Overcoming Automobile Dependence. And that book was launched in the White House in 1999 um, at the time of Clinton and Gore uh, because it was, in fact, the first book uh, that Island Press brought out using the word sustainability. They said they didn't think it would would work, um, but it did. Uh, and in particular, it highlighted the fact that many cities were winning these battles against automobile dependence. And so overcoming it was now becoming a set of case studies that you could show and how they were winning. And at the same time, you could show that the data was beginning to indicate some... some uh, some direction that could say this battle was really being engaged well and uh, we could look forward to perhaps winning it. But I didn't really say that in that book. In 1999, I couldn't bring myself to think that it really would happen. Um, but um, we um, uh, produced the the, the book that you mentioned at the start, The End of Automobile Dependence, this is the third of the trilogy. The first was that, you know, we were setting up the empire, showing what the empire was and that it needed to be engaged in battle. The second was how the empire was being engaged and, and uh, we were winning some battles. And the third, the trilogy is saying, the empire is dead. Now, when I say it's dead, uh, there are plenty more battles to go. It, but the fundamental war against automobile dependence has been won. There are virtually no cities left that say, we want automobile dependence. They don't. They know they have to do something different. And when they do, highly car-based suburbs without any public transport, uh, uh, miles from nowhere with no jobs, they get heavily criticised and the planners in there are ashamed because they know it's not the right thing to do. 
we have won the battle of the mind of the planners to see we must do something different. That doesn't mean that we've won all the political battles by any means. There are constant battles. But, you know, Donald Trump won a crazy election uh, when no one in the world, including myself, expected that. Uh, but at the same time as that was occurring, Los Angeles voted for a $6 billion rail uh, in a referendum uh, rail project that is fundamental to the next 20 or 30 years of work there, a massive campaign to win that. And the people voted for it. They had to get over 75%, I think, and they did. Now, that's um, that could not have been imagined when I started out on this. I was scared stiff of even going to Los Angeles. It was so car dependent. You can go to the city of Los Angeles now and there are many people living without a car in a less, a far less car-dependent way. It is not uh, as though nothing has happened, but there are many more battles to win and uh, I will continue to provide information as long as I can to, uh, to help in those battles. So there are people in our audience who might be experts in this field. They may be professional planners. They might be students of architecture or engineering, uh, but they could also just be your average citizen who's just beginning to learn that there's a term like automobile dependence, even if it's been around for decades. Can you go a little bit further for people who, especially who may not have been around at the time when this whole concept was taking off. When you say automobile dependence, do you mean a city or a suburb that is solely dependent on the automobile? Was that the paradigm that you were reacting against? And what is the paradigm now that is the opposite of that? Is that being multimodal, having many alternatives to transportation, uh, I just want to clear up any misperceptions that the opposite paradigm is something where everybody has to go out and ride a bike. Can you can you speak to that a little yeah. bit? This is um, something that I think we have contributed to. We are not anti the automobile. We are not saying all cars must be banished. We are saying that dependence on them is the problem. The car is a very good servant, but not a good master. So if you plan your city so that there is no possibility other than depending on a car, you will not have a good city. The cities that have lots of options and you don't need to have 100% removal of cars to do that. There are a few cities like that, you know, like Venice doesn't have any cars and it's a good city. But um, we're talking... Uh, about cities, many in, in Europe, that uh, where you could live your whole life and never need a car. Uh, you would, that probably means you'd still get the odd taxi and, and uh, be taken in a car by someone. But it's, it's not like your, your life is going to be fundamentally uh, having less opportunity in it, um, less fulfilment. Um, because you don't have a car. Whereas in Australian and American cities, we are so built around the car that we have to reclaim 
the spaces that are so car dependent. So sub whole suburbs have been built where the public transport is so poor that you really can't depend on it. Uh, if you do, you are spending hours waiting or in it, uh, whereas if you had a car, it is so much quicker. So the, 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 the travel time budget that we have every day, the average is a one-hour travel time budget. So if you go over half an hour for a journey to work in the morning and coming back in the evening, um, if you go over that, you start getting angry, you start thinking there's something wrong, uh, you start taking out on your family because you, 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 you just don't have time enough to live properly. Um, and that, that kind of data we've got to show that some people can live for a longer, uh, ha have a longer travel time budget, but they don't much like it. Some people will have a much shorter one uh, and prefer to spend their time on other things. But the travel time budget defines automobile dependence. If, if, uh, if you have to use a car in order to get a travel time budget that works, then you have a car-dependent lifestyle and, and uh, not much, um, not, not many other options. So a good city is one where you will have public transport options that will take you across the city uh, to wherever you need to go. You'll have local options where you can get there by walking or biking or just a short car trip. Uh, you'll have um, many options that are, are there in, in car sharing and, and other new, new forms of transport as well. Um, so it's all about opportunity. It's all about freedom. And um, in the land of the free, you really need to see that if you are trapped and a servant to your automobile, uh, that is not freedom. So just to um, put it a little bit more bluntly, when we go back to this original concept of the car as being something that we were all going to be dependent upon, what exactly was so wrong with that? If you could quantify that a bit, is it the environmental impact? Is it the reliance on a fossil fuel that is not renewable? Is it the antisocialness of driving in a car by yourself where you're cut off from other people? Is it that it becomes not very uh, manageable time-wise because we're dealing with traffic congestion and that creates delays. We, could you, could you, uh, you know, give us a little bit of a list of what is so wrong with that original concept of of the car? Yeah, I um, I find I don't have to do this as much as I used to because people understand it implicitly now that there are many things, multiple things that car dependence causes. Uh, I started by seeing that oil dependence was fundamentally the problem in that there was a huge resilience issue, that, that, that cities were vulnerable to imported oil being cut off and that, that the cities can fall apart, uh, as they did in 1973. Now, uh, they've adapted quite a bit to uh, reducing that dependence, um, but Oil started me off on that journey, and then I realised there were a whole range of, of environmental issues. Uh, today, climate change is a big one. Uh, we tend to focus on coal as being the big problem, but oil is just as big a problem 
in terms of the atmospheric uh, sources of greenhouse gases. And it's, it's harder to deal with in many ways than, than coal. Um, by the way, that's my latest book, Resilient Cities. The subtitle of that is called Overcoming Fossil Fuel Dependence. And it is about both coal and oil. And it shows how we are winning on both of those fronts. Um, but the problems uh, that you were specifying, um, that there are certainly those environmental problems, air quality issues, um, uh, and, and uh, the health problems these days of car dependence are very, very obvious, that, that people who are driving rather than walking, not having an active life, um, certainly suffer from greater levels of obesity, of depression, and of heart problems. Uh, you, you, we are born to work, to, to walk, and, and if we can't have walking built into our lifestyle and good public transport options build that in automatically, if you can walk to work, fantastic, but very few can. Um, but those kind of options help with the health side of things. The, the social side of things is, um, is very clear. Uh, that the the car dependent suburbs are highly isolated, and uh, you just do not have the opportunities that uh, are created. And many younger people these days have chosen to to leave that behind. They do not want the isolation of those suburbs, the more urban lifestyle where they have that experience of meeting your friends in the street and of w doing uh, lots of interaction um, in, in walking. Is um, is very much the, uh, the 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 place of choice these days. So, um, and all that fits together then into an economic package. So we've looked at a lot of data on how much money is lost because of the infrastructure that's needed in highly scattered suburbs, the um, the loss of money to families because they have to have several cars rather than just one for the supplementary kind of. Uh, parts of their lifestyle that could need um, some car use. Um, that that kind of economics is now uh, much more developed and in the end of automobile dependence we talk about how the knowledge economy is now locating in the old walking cities and in the transit cities, the corridors which had were built around the trains and the trams um, whereas the automobile cities with their shopping centres have very little of the knowledge economy. And these are where the creative, innovative jobs are, the high-paying jobs. This is what cities are competing over. So you have to build good public transport and lots of options if you want to have that kind of economic growth. So that's now driving many of these issues. It's an economic issue, but it's also social, environmental, and it, it's multiple and the, the overlapping issues, the integration of all this into a package is what we've done in our books. <laughs>